Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast series for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back, and we are continuing in the Gospel Feast series on our studying of the book of Daniel. So this is part two of the very meat of Daniel. So getting right to it, after much petition, the prophet Daniel was given an incredibly detailed vision of the history of Israel from uh, Daniel's time to what uh, the heaven's messengers called the time of the end. So we're going to continue where we left off. Uh, Reed, can we get started again? But first, let's go into our Wayback Machine for just a moment. I think it'll help with continuity and get us back into the flow of the vision. We need to step back just a bit. Oh, okay, yes. Julius Caesar came on the scene from the rising Rome. He conquered the Isles and Egypt's queen and returned to his own fort, Rome, where he was declared dictator for life. He actually was trying to emulate the Egyptian system. He had learned about the power of the pharaohs from Egypt, and he wanted the line of Caesars to be the pharaohs of Rome. That's what's actually going on there. One of the princes of Rome, Brutus, murdered him and ended his reign. 
and we actually have his death mask, which you can see the pain on his face from being stabbed repeatedly. Let's post that on the website, Peter, so that people can see it. It's kind of interesting. We actually know exactly what Julius Caesar looked like, at least in his death. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Caesar Augustus did indeed rise up in the estate of Julius, publicly declaring his heirship by way of adoption. He declared a worldwide tax on his empire. Having power to tax all the world is no small announcement. It is also recorded in the New Testament and was the event that caused Joseph and Mary to journey to Bethlehem in time for our Messiah, Jesus Christ's birth. Luke 2.1 And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Under Augustus, Rome reached its glory. In 18 years after the taxation, Augustus died peacefully at home, neither in anger or in battle. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. But he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Tiberius Caesar followed Augustus. When Augustus heard that Tiberius might succeed him, he protested, quote, He is too vile to wear the purple of Rome, end quote. He did eventually take the throne through peaceful means, flattering the Senate into appointing him. Once in power, he proved to be a tyrant, a hypocrite, a drunk, and a debaucher. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Let's translate this better into English. The King James is a little tough here. This would really read better. His life shall be taken from him violently, and so will the life of the prince of the covenant. At the age of 78, Tiberius was suffocated to death with pillows, a violent death, but more important than him was another death. And shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Jesus Christ was indeed crucified during the reign of Tiberius after confirming the covenant for one week with his people. And you can see this in Daniel 9, 25-27, but let's stick with what we're doing. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably, even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches, yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. In prophetic thinking, a time is 360 years. Rome did grow starting small. It would eventually rule the world. Rome made a league with the Jews in 161 BC, never to attack them, which they later broke. Rome will do something which had never been done before. They took whole provinces peacefully. Many kings deeded their realms to Rome upon their death. Any kingdom who came to Rome first was treated with kindness. It was having the prey and the spoil, so to speak. This type of acquisition by a conqueror was new on the earth, and it did last for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. Augustus and the Roman people declared war on Mark Anthony when he was overcome by the charms of Queen Cleopatra. She made him king of Egypt. 
Augustus beat him in part because Anthony's own Egyptian men didn't stand by him, and he lost his allies. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Both Augustus and Anthony ruled jointly, but both desired to rule the kingdom alone. Augustus eventually beat Anthony, returning to Rome with so much wealth that the value of their money fell by half. His celebration of Anthony's defeat lasted three days. His plan was to parade Cleopatra in chains through the streets, but she killed herself before he could take her. Rome would next set its sights on Jerusalem, or the place of the covenant. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Remember a prophetic time is 360 years. This is what we learn from Isaac Newton. Rome did again return to Judea and Egypt many years later, but its authority by then was waning. Christianity was on the rise everywhere, and local and regional bishops were vying for power. In the end, the Bishop of Rome would claim control over all other bishops, and as such would give himself the title of Pope, meaning Father. It was around 360 years later that ships from Chittim, another name for Carthage, brought the Germanic Vandals to Italy. The mighty Vandal leader, Genseric, ruled the seas and greatly embarrassed the Roman power. Both Emperor Majorian and Pope Leo I started campaigns against him, but failed. It was at this time that Rome decreed that none could read the Bible but the priests. The Vandals joined with the Arian sect of Christianity against Emperor Justinian, who in turn decreed that the Roman Pope had the final say in all terms of doctrine. Justinian would also surmise correctly that in the person of the Pope, Rome would achieve tremendous power over the people. Rome had long held power over men's bodies. Men and women could be bought or sold, forced to fight in arenas, or fed to lions for sport. What the Pope gave Rome was something new, power over the soul. The Pope claimed the right to speak as God sitting on the throne of Christ. He claimed the right to bind or loose men in heaven, to excommunicate men from eternal happiness, and guarantee never-ending torment in fiery hell with no hope of escape. That was a power no Caesar or even Pharaoh ever claimed. While these ancient rulers saw themselves as living gods on earth, they were never so arrogant to claim that they had power over the soul of men. These types of powers and attitudes are abominable to our Lord, who taught that men must not judge another's worth. It is our Lord who blocked cruel judgments and inquisitions of his children with such kind words as, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and, Go thy way, and sin no more, thy sins are forgiven thee. Pompous historical papal attitudes were so unchristlike that their practice is proof of spiritual desolation and abomination. They are truly the abominations of desolation, as nothing leads to more destruction of the human soul. History stands as the witness. At first, imperial Rome murdered the apostles and the saints, and they co-opted them, merging church and state into one abomination. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant 
shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Known as the Great Apostasy, this event was foretold by the Lord and many of his apostles during their lifetime and can be found in the New Testament. It was the time when many false Christs arrived and men would seek the truth but not find it. With the loss of priesthood keys on the earth, sanctuary once found in sacraments, ordinances, baptisms, and endowments was polluted by Rome and lost. Baptism by immersion at the age of accountability became infant sprinkling. Confirmation of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands by one having authority morphed into incense burning and recitation of catechisms and trance-like babbling in nonsensical tongues. Repentance prior to sin became possible through indulgences purchased with filthy lucre. Faith was connected to mystery and meditation on the unknowable. It was indeed a loss of the daily sacrifice, the only sacrifice acceptable post-Christ, that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now all was pomp and vanity. In its place was nothing but an abomination, one that would leave its followers destitute, or with nothing of value. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil, many days. Despite the disastrous arrogance of the Christian church, there were many who tried to save and reform it. Many are the martyrs in all ages who raise their voice in concern at the cost of their lives. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall, to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. The Reformation was brought about by wise men who, upon reading the Holy Covenant, realized how far from the truth Christianity had strayed. William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and even King Henry VIII began to doubt what seemed impossible, that true Christianity was missing from the earth. Men like Isaac Newton and Thomas Jefferson knew that something was wrong, and noted that God himself was needed, and indeed had to come to make sense of the disaster that was religion in his holy name. Joseph Smith saw these men in vision when pondering and reading a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. He said, I have seen those martyrs, and they were honest, devoted followers of Christ, according to the light they possessed, and they will be saved. Joseph also praised the courage of Martin Luther, declaring his translation of the Bible into German to be the best yet done, noting that he preferred it even to the King James, except that the saints of the day spoke English. He also stated that the Lord's Spirit had moved upon men like King Henry VIII when he weakened papal power in preparation for the Lord's plan to restore the gospel in fullness. Terrible religious struggles like these led to the founding of the New World in America and the concept of separation of church and state. There was indeed many good and great men who were unafraid of the Pope's threats of hellfire and physical torture. They were helped in their endeavors with a little help from above. Not a complete restoration of the fullness of the gospel, but with a little help they were hoping. Men like Columbus, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson all knew that there was an angel in the storm, leading and protecting them, not with the open visions and knowledge of men of old, but visibly with the hand of providence, as they called it. Many times they pled, Why in secret, Lord? Daniel held the answer, For the time of full cleansing was not yet appointed. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, 
nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. From the previous verse we come down to the time of the end. Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of France, and the events surrounding the French Revolution fits this prophecy perfectly. The French people were tired of the elitist caste system they toiled under. Spurred on by the success of freedom in America, but lacking the God-fearing founders that blessed our shores, the French Revolution was a reign of terror, bloody and frightful. These new kings of France did do according to their will. Voltaire expressed the feeling of the time when he said, I am weary of hearing people repeat that twelve men established the Christian religion. I will prove that one man may be sufficient to overthrow it. Kind of arrogant, but Voltaire was. Their new leaders, Rousseau de Alembert, Diderot, and others discarded the Bible and declared atheism and humanism to be the only true religion. Thus they did speak great blasphemies against God, against Catholicism, their father's God, and against paganism, known as the desire of women anciently. They destroyed the concept of marriage, and many men divorced their wives and cast off their children. In just one year, 48,000 children were abandoned to the streets of France. Soon all worship was outlawed except praise of liberty and country, the Bible was publicly burned, and the churches were desecrated. In public parades, young women were veiled and declared to be the embodiment of reason. Termed the goddess of reason, this new goddess was paraded into official state meetings and enthroned on the right hand of the civil official presiding. But in his estate shall he honor the god of forces. And a god whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. This new religion became the frenzy of France, with the leaders of the revolution being known as the Atheists. They renamed the ancient Notre Dame Cathedral the Temple of Reason. Donkeys were given drinks out of the former holy sacrament chalices and orgies, a natural force to be sure, and humanism ruled the day. It is difficult to be too harsh on the French people. The Catholic Church had been so incredibly oppressive there. Papal Rome had manipulated their rulers, tortured dissenting citizens, and burned any Frenchman they disliked at the stake. Corruption in the Church was rampant and universally known. The masses felt very much like teenagers finally being put in charge of the house while their parents were away. They had for so long been commanded in all things that their newfound sense of freedom knew no bounds. This new religion of reason remained in force until Bonaparte ended it in 1799 AD. We will discuss Napoleon's place in this shortly, but we must stop and insert the following commentary. As Christians united fighting humanism and atheism in our times, we sometimes confuse our happy incarnation of Christian life with the hellish form of Christianity that the medieval popes and even some modern denominations force upon their people. Oppressive Christianity is satanic and has been from the beginning. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. Under Catholic French law, vast tracts of papal and elitist lands could not be subdivided for any purpose. This guaranteed that the powerful would always remain so, while the poorer classes could never achieve private ownership. When the French Revolution government needed funds, they simply confiscated these properties and auctioned them off. The resulting sale netted more than 700 million pounds sterling in 1790 currency value. During this time, a brilliant young soldier, Napoleon Bonaparte, was defending the French Revolution's interests at home and abroad. Soon he took the eye of revolutionary leader Maximilien de Robespierre. By the age of 24, he was promoted to brigadier general. 
1796, he invaded Italy, defeated the papal troops, and occupied papal lands. Pope Pius VI sued for peace, which was granted on February 19, 1797. But just 10 months later, a riot brought another French general, Berthier, back to Rome. There at the Vatican, on February 10, 1798, he effectively dethroned the Pope, removing all his power as an earthly king. He declared the papal lands free and demanded that the Pope renounce all temporal authority over the earth. Of course, this last part was too much for the Pope, and he refused. He was taken prisoner ten days later and escorted out of the Vatican to the Citadel of Valence in Drome, where he died six weeks later on the 29th of August, 1799. At the time, he had reigned longer than any other pope in history. It would not be long before Napoleon would be appointed to the Provisional Consulate of France. Shortly after, he installed himself as First Consul, giving himself sweeping powers of state. A new pope was also appointed by the Church, calling himself Pius VII. But the damage was done. The papal power was broken and has never regained its former glory. In one short arrest, the French had undone what Emperor Justinian had started 1,260 years earlier. In 1804, Napoleon did attempt to make peace with the Vatican in exchange for being declared Emperor of France. But, at his coronation ceremony, he humiliated Pope Pius VII by taking the crown into his own hands and declaring himself Emperor, an event denied by Vatican historians today, despite historical witnesses who say it actually happened and who saw it. In fact, we have a sketch of what happened by an artist. Let's post that on the website, Peter, so people can see. Yes. The Pope had for centuries demanded the sole right to appoint European successors. He enforced his power with a strong-armed military enforcer known as the Holy Roman Emperor. Napoleon didn't care about any of this. He even went so far as to dissolve the Holy Roman Empire and created the new Confederation of the Rhine. But the masses were longing for a more stable religion than that of the religion of reason. So Napoleon released 20,000 Catholic clergymen who had been imprisoned during the revolution, provided that they swear allegiance to the government of France and not to the Pope of Rome. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Napoleon's incredible rise was as great as his fall. During the Napoleonic Wars, he terrorized all the great nations of Europe. He would also invade Arab lands, conquering Egypt and injuring British trade in the region. It was Napoleon who damaged the Great Pyramid at Giza looking for an entrance. These events and the subsequent misadministration of Palestine by Egypt and the Ottoman rulers reduced the population of the Holy Land. Native Arabs and Jews fled to safer lands, and revolts by Palestinian Arabs against Egyptian and Ottoman rule at this time brought about the sense of Palestinian nationalism, and it's what we're dealing with today. Reorganization of the Turkish Empire to foreigners restored some order and started new Jewish settlements with desires for Zionism. Thus, both Arab and Jewish population increased in the area. Hoping to curb immigrating Jews, the Ottoman government imposed severe restrictions on Jewish immigration and land purchase. 
they began actively soliciting Muslims from other parts of the empire to settle in the Holy Land. These restrictions were evaded by Jews seeking to return to their ancestral lands, chiefly by bribery. At Waterloo, Napoleon was defeated, but it was Napoleon who ended papal power. In 1798 AD, the papal authority that was granted in 508 AD by Emperor Justinian was ended by Emperor Napoleon. If you take 508 AD plus 1,290 years, as Daniel was told, you get 1798 AD, exactly as Daniel said. This became known officially as the time of the end. But the end of what? This is important to understand. What was ending? the end of Gentile authority over the children of Israel. It was time for a restoration of all things. It was time for the fullness of the gospel. It was time for what Nephi foresaw in his great vision. Let's look at it. First Nephi fourteen seventeen. And when the day cometh that the wrath of God is poured out upon the mother of harlots, which is the great and abominable church of all the earth, whose founder is the devil, then at that day the work of the Father shall commence, in preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants, which he hath made to his people, who are the house of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? So the end of the Gentile authority that Daniel saw going clear back from the destruction of the kings of Judah, the taking over of Babylon, all the way through Rome, and the fall of Rome into the empires of Rome and into papal Rome, was beginning. This is the great rock that was carved without hands and hurled at the idol. God is now going to interject himself into the ruling of the house of Israel in a way that hadn't been seen since the kings of Judah. What Nephi is saying is, at the time of the end, God the Father would begin to prepare the way. You read that right. It does not say that 1798 AD would be the fullness desired by all the saints, only that the Father, and not the Son, would begin the process of preparation. A mere seven more years, a prophetic week, and Joseph Smith the prophet would be born in rural New York. In regards to the Father leading the work, the reader will note that in 1820 AD, and we're celebrating that 200 years this very year, God the Father and his son Jesus Christ appeared to the boy prophet Joseph Smith Jr. in a grove of trees, now called the Sacred Grove. There the Father himself testified anew of his only begotten son Jesus Christ and put his stamp of approval on the coming Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is my testimony this indeed happened, and it was recorded in Daniel hundreds and hundreds of years before. To finish out the vision of Daniel, we have three last verses. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy, and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end. None shall help him. Now hindsight is twenty twenty, and since these events are yet to happen, or are in the process of happening right now, we will just have to wait and see exactly how this plays out. What we do know is that a northern ruler from the family of Gog and his people called Magog will join forces with those who hate the house of Israel and wage terrible war against Jerusalem, the glorious mountain, but will be defeated by the power of God. John the Beloved and the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 38 through 39 deal with these events in greater detail, but these are the events of the official second coming of Jesus Christ. Near this time, the prophet Joseph Smith taught that a great conference of priesthood would be held in the valley of Adam on Diamond. 
There Michael, the heavenly name for our father Adam, will oversee an accounting. Each of the great priesthood leaders of the ages will give a report concerning their dealings with God, Satan, and the family of man during their time on the earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ will also be in attendance, where he will make all the official preparations of his second coming, as well as fulfill the promise of Amos by forewarning his prophets and his people of the terrible events to come. Daniel chapter 12 And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. At some point after this official conference, the Lord will make his appearance in the clouds, saving his Jewish kin from their time of trouble, binding Satan and his hosts for a thousand years, and ushering in his millennial reign. The graves will open, and those names recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life will rejoice. Some of mankind will be resurrected to celestial joy, and others to the painful realization of what could have been. Another promise is given, one that echoes the Beatitudes of old. Blessed and forgiven will be those who bring others to a knowledge of these truths. Great will be their joy together. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel was left with this good advice. Then the time was a long way off. So many miracles and disasters were yet to take place. He had gained more and learned more than all the children of men living in his day. Many things would not be understandable until the time when they were needed. Many would yet travel to and fro across the earth, something that today is possible. You and I can fly around the globe in hours, a mind-blowing advancement if you really think about it. Knowledge that everything has been increased to the point that it is no longer possible for one human being to study the sum of man's knowledge is also incredibly true now. In short, it would not be until after the day of the Gentile that Daniel's book would be truly understood. We will soon study the prophecies about the Messiah and the restoration of the sanctuary, which stand as proof of Daniel 12.4. We shall see the fulfillment of Daniel's words, as you and I will understand what our ancestors could not. And in fact, in some small way, Peter, this feast and our feasting together is a fulfillment. In part, not saying it's totally the fulfillment, but in part of what Daniel said— We understand Daniel, and we understand him in ways that were not possible even a few years before. Wow. Okay. We are learning new and wonderful things in this feast. I hope all those that are listening are enjoying this as much as I am. Let's continue our feast. We have yet to explore the last verse Daniel left for us. But first, so as not to break up the grandeur of Daniel's vision we're studying, we jumped too quickly over those verses to deal with the Lord and Savior— specifically Daniel 9:24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Let's savor these verses a moment and see what we can glean from them. 
Here we learn that the 2,300 years until the cleansing of Israel's religion, 70 weeks would be set aside to complete the law of Moses, witness the great atoning sacrifice of the Messiah, and end the official witness of Israel as the shining example to the nations. In Jewish thinking, 70 weeks was 490 years, or 7 weeks of 7 periods, so we get 490. But what year started the clock? Daniel had not long pondered this very question when the answer was given to him. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. This command was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia in 457 BCE, which of course means before the Christian era in our series. It took 49 years to complete, or exactly seven prophetic weeks, seven times seven. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This also came to pass exactly. Let's recap it as it can be confusing. This long span of time from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the sanctification of the house of Israel would be 2,300 years. The command to rebuild Jerusalem occurred in 457 B.C. Seventy weeks, or 490 years, were given to the Jews to fulfill the promises of Moses. At the end of that period of time, which was 34 A.D., the gospel in the form of Christianity began to spread among the nations, who are called the Gentiles. The word Gentiles only means nations. The time of the nations ruling over Israel was ending, is what this is saying. From the start of this period to the Messiah would be 69 weeks, or 483 years. At that exact time, Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. Once baptized and anointed, he began his mortal ministry. However, in the midst of his week, a prophetic week is seven years, so halfway is 3.5 years, he was cut off from the land of the living. He was crucified. From the announcement that the church was to go to the Gentiles in 34 AD to the cleansing of the holy sanctuary, which marked a full restoration, was the remaining 1,810 years out of the 2,300 years. 2,300 years minus 1,810 years brings us to the year 1844 AD. Oh, wow. A year that would live in infamy for several reasons but from a Gentile perspective as the year of the Great Disappointment, which we will also explore. But first, let's talk about Messiah the Prince. Wow, what an incredible feast. That is an amazing vision. It's great how that with a little bit of historical knowledge, you were able to clarify what many people have considered to be one of the most confusing chapters you know, in all of Scripture. That was some real meat. Uh, we are a bit over time. We just want to say uh, for everyone that our podcasts aren't reviewed and commissioned or endorsed by any religion. This is our opinion and our comments only. And until then, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue to be with all of you. Music.